Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Welcome to this episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have my dear friend and fellow therapist, Mike Vaughn, with us, and Mike is an incredible guy. He, we have lunch probably once a month, right, Mike? Not and enough. Not enough. No, not enough. We, we make our best effort in between working with clients to get together and talk shop. And today we're going to be on the podcast, basically talking probably like we do during lunchtime. Hmm. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my dear friend, Mike. And Mike, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and let them know a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, of course, thanks for having me. This has an added layer, right? So podcasting is fun, but doing it with a really good friend is even more fun. I'm not sure it gets better than that. Uh, yeah. So my name is Mike Vaughn. I'm a licensed, I don't know, clinical mental health counselor supervisor. If <laughs> say that again. Um, Three times in, fast. In North Carolina, CSAT, which is certified sex addiction therapist. I've been in private practice for about 20 years now. And really my three specialties are sex addiction, marriages, marriage work of all different kinds, and trauma. And really, um, probably if I had a subspecialty, it'd be the intersection of the three of those and how they interact with one another. Wait, so you're saying you deal with sex addiction, marriage, and trauma? And that those things are all related? I, I decided to go the easy route with the counseling in the counseling <laughs> profession. So I took the easy one. And yes, they tend to be all related sometimes. Yeah. All right. So I don't think a lot of listeners are going to be fully up on sex addiction. Mm-hmm. So can you break it down for us? What is sex addiction? Sure. Um, so, you know, if you know anything about addiction is essentially um, the way we tend to go about diagnosing addiction is that is typically either a substance, um, right? Can it be an external thing like different drugs? Um, sex is still a, a drug addiction because it's just a, it's a, a drug that's made inside your body. Um, alcohol, of course, a substance, right? External, but whether it's internal or external, kind of go about talking about addiction and we diagnose it through the lens of several factors. First of all, and this can get a little tricky, but how much harm has this thing caused in your life? How unwanted is this thing, right? Look, what attempts or efforts to stop it have you made? And sometimes that's not always the most accurate. People will say, I haven't made any attempts, then therefore I'm not addicted to it. But that's we have multiple criteria for a reason, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so harm and efforts to stop. But interestingly, I think what would be um, really important to say, especially for this podcast, is sometimes too, how much money have you spent or lost um, and or time have you spent or lost on this thing that probably you really, if you were honest, didn't want to spend or didn't want to lose that can be a really great indicator of the presence of addiction. So sex, oftentimes, it, it's unique in the sense that all things are unique, but it also falls very much into the same category of the other addictions in terms of the addiction cycle and the ways that kind of people interact with it and things like that. So that's, that's a nutshell. We could say more, you know, that's a flyover. 
Oh, we're going to say more. We're definitely going to say more because already I'm like, I knew this was going to be an education on addiction for me and a reminder because I've done some of the same training as you have, but I haven't yeah. gone nearly as deep as you have in that in that lens and angle. So, and I know, look, as society, we have all kinds of ideas about addiction and how it works, mm-hmm. and some of them are half-baked and some of them are fully baked. But okay. um, I think you really were drawing out something that's interesting about one part of evaluating addiction is the financial cost of it. Mm-hmm. So can you say a little bit more about that that piece of it? Because that is relevant to this audience, especially as where, where couples are trying to organize their finances and sometimes transparency gets to be a really big issue for them. And I know that that starts to creep over into addiction op- often. So let's go down that road. Absolutely. So, you know, with all addictions, a lot of times, um, and this is true of sex, even though in today's age, you can access things like pornography for free. Um, You don't have to pay for it, but I'll I'll circle back to that in just a second. With all addictions, almost, there typically is money spent to keep it going. Now, you can think of that in the classic sense of, like, for example, I spend a certain amount per week on alcohol if I'm an alcoholic, naturally. Right. Um, But you can also think of it a little bit outside the box. And this is where I will talk to my clients, especially around sex addiction, um, particularly if pornography is the main object of the addiction, because yes, you can access that for free. But the thing is, we all have, in a manner of speaking, there is a cost associated with our time. And so when people say to me, oh, well, zero money spent on my addiction, I'll say, sure. And like, as far as you actually like, transactions, right? Trading dollars for pornography, right? You're not putting your credit card on the file. Uh How much is your time worth? And so how much money have you actually spent lost on that? And what could you have done with that time if you weren't in active addiction? And so there's there's a couple ways to think about it in terms of financial cost. Yeah. Because I think I think it does our time does translate into actual financial cost, of course, whether it's tangible or not. Yes, yes. And so if for anyone listening out there like, well, I, you know, not thinking about addiction, um, you know, you think certainly money spent. And with sex addiction, I think it's important to say people unfortunately can, and they do, and I've had these plenty of these clients spend many, many thousands of dollars on sex addiction because there are many ways to pay for things. Um, I, you know, I, I'd say the most of that is probably around a quarter to half a million dollars so far. Um, that I've experienced in active addiction with sex addiction. And of course, with substances and drugs that can get even higher, you know, more easily probably. Wait, did um, you just say a quarter of a million dollars? You've seen some people... To half, to half a million, yeah. To Somewhere half a million. in that range, yeah. And so when this... And that's probably trying to account as best as we can hard dollars spent to consume sexually provocative material or engagements. Correct. Um, and then kind of those soft costs that you're talking about, like lost labor time. So if you're an entrepreneur and you bill $200 an hour, but you're only able to work three hours a day because you're so lost in your addiction, well, that's mm-hmm. five, let's say you work an eight hour day, five hours times two, that's a K. Mm-hmm. And now you start stacking that up day over day, week over week, month over month, year over year. Yeah. And and then we have this other type of cost, which is the time perhaps, and this is that soft cost of the time lost with your family or in other meaningful relationships that's hard to put a full monetary value on, but it's the lost opportunity of quality time with other people that you care about and then care about you. And then maybe the money you spend to cover over the shame you feel as a result. 
So like you have the time lost with family, with friends, like the things that are dear to you. Yeah. And so what we know happens, of course, is then we spend money sometimes to cover the shame that we experience as a result, right? This is, I don't want to be pejorative, but this is the kind of the Disney, Disney mom, Disney dad thing. Like I, I feel bad that I'm not as involved as I would like to be. And maybe I can't be, but regardless, in this right. case with addiction, shame often, of course, is going to, I think, translate in a way that's a little bit, quote unquote, easier to manage than actually processing dealing with it. And so it's pretty easy to go and spend money and buy things, which in and of itself is not wrong. But when it's a covering for or a medicator against, now we have more money spent and of course, more cycling, right? Because the more money I spend, especially if I get into financial trouble, guess what? The more shame I feel. So it's just this big cycle that can occur. So this is really valuable to help people start to think through and understand this because I, I would imagine most people are pretty innocent to understanding how all these pieces come together, right? I mean, that's part of the trap of the cycle is you, you can't even see how it's all working, but you just know your life is getting more and more chaotic right? and things are getting scarier and more overwhelming for you. But so what you're saying is, okay, I'm lost in this sexual addiction. I have some remorse or guilt about not being around for my family, doing more, so then I might pay for a lavish trip to Disney instead of a, an average trip to Disney. Or, I mean, and it can express in a lot of different ways. So that's why you said, I'm not trying to be pejorative, but it's yeah. it's the nicer toys, maybe a nicer dinner, maybe it's extra gas money for the kids. I mean, clothing, whatever. So that's what people need to be looking at is like, am I using money to make up for emotional absence? It's kind of the word that I'm using, like me not being available physically or psychologically Am I using money as a tool to try to cover over that? And I, I see that in my work all yeah. the time. All the time. And so do I. And I obviously, I don't do what you do, um, but it's definitely there. The way I might say this is, am I using money to try to emotionally regulate where I feel otherwise really dysregulated? Uh, Mike, I mean, I don't, our lunches are good, but this is like even better. Like, I don't know. I, <laughs> We'll do, we'll do this more. Yeah, no, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, people uh, talk about in kind of um, colloquial terms, people will talk about buying love, right? Sometimes, right, but right. in reality, more often what we're really doing in those scenarios is we are covering our shame and, or we are regulating, trying to regulate what we otherwise feel dysregulated about emotionally because we don't have this relationship that we would like. And especially if we believe we're part of the cause for that, we can do all kinds of different things to try to deal with that. Money, though, 100% is a way that people, because it's so tangible. I can go and buy a thing and bring it to you, or I can take you somewhere. It's so tangible. Well, and it has a, a dollar amount, right? It's like, I, I know objectively this house costs 500000 750000 $2.5 million, right? And it's that like... Something about that objective number is soothing in the short run for a lot of folks where it's like, right. because otherwise our emotional intensity frequency is more subjective and it's hard to right. kind of wrap our head around, but it's like, I can quantify how much money I just spent and what that means. Now, the jewelry industry has done a phenomenal job of yes, this, right? Really good. Um, I'm picking on the jewelry industry. Any of my jewelers listening, I'm sorry. Much love. Go go to their jewelry store and buy you a diamond ring. You have a very good industry. And, yeah. 
And, um, but so let's hear. So we're talking about, so it's very easy for two therapists to get on and start talking about emotions and dysregulation. Yeah. And just this morning I was writing about dysregulation and dissociation and emotions and how it impacts financial decision-making. So can you give us your spin on the role of emotions in humans? Wow, we're going to just do light things, I guess, here today. Yes, yes, about. yes. Just taking it light. Sorry, listeners, if uh, you don't want to go that. <laughs> on your, while you're, you know, put your earbuds in while you're driving the kids this to the This would be the carpool. part of the conversation to turn it down. This whole thing you might want to turn down since we're talking about sex addiction. <laughs> um, <laughs> honey, honey, no, don't listen to this one. <laughs> yeah, you know, in short, I, I think that emotions, I think we were created to have emotions, but... um. I think that they are a super important part of our information system. So we love to focus on what we think about and what we can take in with, um, uh, like take in kind of from a senses perspective, our, th- our thoughts, right? And sadly, this is post-industrial world kind of things that I think we've come to this. But the truth is, our emotions give us critical data about ourselves and about others around us. And so I think we are at our most holistic and complete when we are aware of what we're feeling as well as what we're thinking, of course, and you put those together because what we are feeling, where people get, I think, twist up with emotions and they say, oh, well, that emotion, you know, I either I shouldn't have that emotion, right? So we bring judgment to it or essentially, you know, emotions are kind of lesser in the hierarchy to to thoughts because emotions can be fickle and you can feel this thing this way, right? Oh, in yeah, reality, oh, yeah. The truth is, of course, they can be fickle, but you don't think your thoughts can be super fickle because they really can be <laughs> oh, too. Oh, no. Oh, so, no. I didn't ever think about it that way. Fickle thoughts. How do we get thoughts yes. as the be-all, end-all? <laughs> because anybody who's inside their own head knows... Right? Like that can turn on a dime. Oh my God. So instead, I think I like to think of emotions moment by moment. So I might be something, I might be feeling something with you right now that later I look back and say, I don't, I don't judge it and say I shouldn't have felt it. It may not be reflective of where I am then, or even maybe most reflective of my thoughts now. But the point is, if I know what I'm feeling now, from an intimacy perspective, I can give you some of that and you can know me better in the moment. And so I think emotions are as critical as our thoughts and beliefs about truly connecting on deep levels with one another. Well, I can imagine for my analytical type listeners, when you put emotions are a form of data, like they're right. It it just went off for them. Like, oh, I can connect with this. So emotions can be thought of as like data. Can -hmm. you elaborate on the way you frame that? Because I I really like that. I think it makes it very relatable for those that are more analytically oriented and want things to be objective. You know, it's, it's data packets, right? So if I'm interacting with someone and I feel frustrated, if I'm aware of the fact that I feel frustrated, I can use that as information about myself and others. What does it tell me? It tells me that in that moment, something is going on there that's on some level egregious to me or an offense or something else probably. Use sure. a different emotion. If I'm relating to someone and I feel sad, or grief in some way. It uh-huh. may not be an overt thing, but that is that is information whereby I know myself better because then you can do the thought part, which is, well, why did I feel sad in that conversation with Ed? What was that about? Uh-huh. Right? And or 
when Ed shared that thing with me, I felt a different thing. So what do I know about Ed as far as what he shared when he was frustrated about that thing? It, this is where it gets scary and why we like to stay in our intellectual head because emotions, honestly, emotions, I believe, give us more information about ourselves and others than our thoughts really do. Wow. Keep, keep going on that. I'm, okay. I'm tracking with you and I'm thinking I've probably got 23 more questions to come after this. So okay. yeah, we'll hit we keep going. So our emotions tell us the thing they, they act as a filter by which we can't, we feel an emotion before the slower part of our brain can think about a thing. And so it's a much quicker read on a situation, both ourselves and others. Right. Right. Like that's the parts of the brain that are um, kind of, we're working with there are fast. We're picking up information from others and it takes a little longer. We're talking milliseconds, but still takes longer to actually then process that. So the more aware we are of our emotional selves, the more information we're gaining all the time about ourselves and others. The thing when we try to dismiss emotions is that actually we're taking that data set and we're setting them aside And we're actually, in that bifurcation, we're just using one, probably half of the information that we would learn about ourselves and that we would be able to connect with others on. And honestly, I don't know if everyone would agree with this, but you know, if I'm interacting with you and you tell me that something is frustrating to you, and then you go on and tell me something that you think about a subject, not only do I know more about you when you tell me that you're frustrated, because I know what that feels like. I also, though, connect to you more richly, which is the scary part. And that's why we don't do it. Because if you tell me, first of all, for you to share, you're frustrated. That's that's risky. Because what if I'm like, oh, Ed, well, you know, men do this all the time. Well, I don't I I don't think you should be frustrated by that. You you should. Right. Like, that's what we do. (laughs) Naturally, we don't want to share that stuff with people because we don't want to hear where that emotion is wrong at the same time. Um, You know, I think when you share that you're frustrated, it then is going to connect, if I'm aware at all, emotionally for me as well. And now we have a thing transpiring between us that we might not even, we're not probably even in some ways consciously aware of all the levels of the connection there. So it's an opportunity for rich connection. And this, to tie it to sex addiction for a minute, this is where it ties to addiction because sex addiction, of course, is an intimacy disorder, right? We want to be close, but we go about it in a way that we are hedging against risk. And this is ties to the financial part, of course, because everyone listening can understand hedge and risk when you put those together. But we do that in our intimate relationships because intimacy is scary. We may be hurt, rejected, abandoned, left, or even things lesser than that. So, right, because our human sexuality is a very vulnerable part of being human, right? right? Like we're afraid of being judged or rejected or minimized or misunderstood in our sexual interest or desire or frequency, intensity, yeah. what we find pleasurable, what we don't find pleasurable. And the reality is that's true for people in their money life too, right? In the mm-hmm. couple relationship, that's what's blocking financial intimacy is I'm afraid that you're going to judge me, you're going to criticize me, you're going to tell me I'm stupid, that what I want is not valuable or meaningful, mm-hmm. that it's, you know, all those things stop people from really coming together around their finances and not sharing. I mean, I was right. with a group of women this earlier this week doing a presentation on financial intimacy, and, and I said, well, yeah, you know, 
you can run a, your credit report with you and your partner. And they looked at me with shock in their face. Like, you want me to do what? Aren't they going to be offended? I said, well, y'all get naked together, right? <laughs> and they looked at me like, yeah. And I said, well, you, you can't get financially naked? And so there's this big taboo about knowing each other's financial information. And the taboo is because of those difficult emotions of being shamed or judged or ridiculed or held in contempt that stop people. And that's part of what drives, I think, and we haven't talked a lot about it, but the compulsive side of money behavior mm -hmm. and money hiding, right, is trying to hedge or guard against being seen. And so I'll just mm -hmm. be over here. And this is where I think things can start to spiral into workaholism very quickly, which I'm sure you come across too with your yeah, sex addict um, clients, that they're not just compulsively addicted to sex, but it's the other places that they're compulsively guarding against feeling difficult emotions. Is that yes. I think there is a distinct parallel between what we're talking about with emotions and money. And to me, the parallel is that what we spend our money on or we don't Right. Um, very much gives ourselves and each other lots of deep information about each other, right? Absolutely. And the same as emotions. And then it gets a little complicated because you have emotions about spending money and all that stuff. But I think to yeah. keep it simple, yeah. there's tons of parallels there because what I... What I buy or not buy, um, what I what I value in terms of how I spend my money says if I well if I gave it to a guy like you, which you know you know a lot of that, you could do a lot with it. But anyone can get a sense of us if they know what we're spending our money on or what we're not spending our money on. Well, it conveys at some level what we value and prioritize, right? I mean, a very simple example or the cars that we drive says something about what we value and how much money we're willing to spend on a vehicle. Right. Now, the association that's added to that will vary, right? Because you and I may have similar financial values. You look at me driving a Honda minivan, you're like, oh, Ed's being responsible, Right. Maybe. I don't know. Right. I'm trusting that. Maybe I'm wrong. And it's okay if you I'll value talk it. I'll with you about that later. At lunch. Right. Yeah. You don't want to shame me on the on my on own the podcast. Your own podcast. Oh, man. That would be. But, right. Somebody else could be, yeah. look at me and be like, dude, that's a that's a really nice van. Like, I'd love to be able to buy that, like, newer van. Yeah. And somebody else could look at it and be like, man, why isn't that guy driving a 5 Series BMW? His wife's a dentist. Yep. Right. And so that's, and I, I think I'm stumbling into this. Um, but part of the developing a healthy sense of self is working with our own evaluation of what's good for us and how other people will see or evaluate what we're doing or not doing. Yeah. Right. And that, that parallels with our sexuality too, right? Is that, yes. and our sexuality is not always quite on display in the same way that our financial behaviors are, but right. in many ways, the way we care ourselves and how provocatively we dress or how conservatively is an expression of our sexual part of our sexuality. Totally. And we have to navigate how people see us in that way. Yeah, and in, in in our intimate relationships, like in our um relationships where we are sexual, it is the same in so many ways because it the expression of longings and desires and all the things that go with that, which is the same with money then those things, the parallel is that it says when when you know someone's 
longings and desires, whatever context you put it in, you know a lot about them if you stop and think about it. Yeah. Yeah. That I want to, I mean, I'm dying to share this story, Mike. I, I'm also feeling like I'm getting a little of my own therapy by being with you. So, which is probably true of most months. Go for it. That's, that's true for both of us. Yeah. It goes both ways. But, uh, you know, I was taking my son shopping um, a couple of weeks ago for back to school for furniture for his room, new desk. We're at Ikea. Talk, I mean, you made it out apparently, which is thank God know, a feat I mean, unto itself. Yes, but yes, definitely. Well, and you know, we're at that finish line. We find the things, the carts loaded up, and I mean, this is talk about emotional arousal, right? Like you got this stress, but excitement kind of built in, at least for me. Like, oh, we're getting this stuff. I feel proud. We're gonna, and like, so my brain is in an altered state. It's mm-hmm. not the same as if I'm walking through the woods and just relaxed, right? right. Like it's. My brain has just seen all these cues for buying, just yeah. a gazillion of them. So many. And then I get right close to the checkout line, and what's right in front of me, Mike? No a idea. Backyard umbrella on a stand <laughs> with a hinge that can tilt. And of course, it has to tilt. And it's it tilts and it rotates 360. And I'm just like, oh, I've been looking for something like this. I've the last couple seasons. I haven't told anybody because it's I, I'm not ready. But then I see it and my son's with me and then I see the price, $219. And I'm like, I would be foolish not to buy this. It's a steal. It's a steal, right? Which is that value judgment, the mm-hmm. thoughts that go with the emotional arousal, the pleasure, seeing mm-hmm. myself in the backyard with my wife and mm-hmm. the kids and now we're shaded and we're out in the sun. And right, all of that is just firing so fast. Yeah. And so... I buy it and I come home, you know, with desk for son and chair and blah, blah, blah. And then, then umbrella. And I didn't talk to the wife because it was under that threshold of like, uh-huh. if it's more than $500 for us, it's like, we're going to talk about it. So 200, you know, a little fuzzy because $200 is still a lot of money. But you know, what was so amazing as my wife and I have grown and she's learning and we're learning together is she could tell I was really excited. Mm-hmm. She, but what? And I, get the umbrella all set up and she's busy cooking dinner. I'm like, you got to come see this. And she actually comes out and sees it and acknowledges, wow, I can see you're really excited about it. And she asks about it, which meant the world to me. Yeah. Right. And so like what I, what I'm getting at and trying to see the parallel is like, that was like financial innuendo moving towards financial intimacy. Yeah. Right. Like I'm making this bid for connection for, I want mm-hmm. you to see what I've done that I feel proud about it, that you're reading that sense of pride instead of coming at it. Like, well, why'd you spend $200? I can't mm-hmm. believe you, you were only supposed to get this right. Which is the way it goes a lot of times for yeah. folks when they come home and they've bought something they feel proud of and excited about. And their partner's first reaction is judgment. Right. Now there might be a place for having a corrective conversation, yeah. but judgment is not the first place. Right. I think what I take from that is a lot of things, but, you know, our finances as well as our sex lives, as well as our emotional lives, the things that we're talking about so far today, those three in particular, I think, are really so tied to the deepest parts of us. Yeah. And not everything is. So not yeah. to make it seem like that, but those three in particular, I think are, and there are some others on that list, but you know, when you get home or anyone comes home with a purchase, the, the thing about our, what we spend our money on in is that 
we really, in a way, we're exposing ourselves, whether it feels like that or not, but that's what we're doing. (laughs) We are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. The way you're saying it. Yes. We're exposing ourselves. We're saying something about ourselves. And you said a lot um, to Anne about what is important to you, which is family things and staying cool, which is hard in our climate. <laughs> North Carolina in the middle of the summer, yes. And in, in, in August, like almost impossible. And probably a lot of other things. Maybe, you know, maybe it ties to you wish you had an umbrella when you were a kid, like that would have meant the world to you as a family. There's a lot of things, a lot of times that it connects to, but we don't have to talk about that yet. But the thing is, like it is, there's an element for sure of vulnerability and exposing an intimacy that's associated. We just don't think of it so much with money, I think, because of the tangibility of it all. But a hundred percent is. Now we do think of it sometimes more, I think, with sex and some of the other things that we're talking about, maybe even emotions. But right. right, when we make those, when we make the bids to connect with others, but especially if it's not an overt bid, if it's coming home with an umbrella, curiosity is the best thing that we can be met with. Because if a person's curious, they're not judgmental, at least not yet. They may judge after they find the information, so we should say that. <laughs> right, I mean, right. It is still risky. Yes. But if yes. the first thing out of the gate is curious, like, oh, okay, you bought that and you're excited about it. Let me know more about that. That initial response, I think, becomes the critical piece for couples being able to, if there is a disagreement yeah. about it, to work through that. Right, right. We are particularly sensitive to judgment as it relates to our finances 100% because they, our finances say a lot about us. I'll tell you a story. Do we have time for a story? Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's hear a Mike Vaughn story. We've been okay. getting Ed's stories. Let's get a Mike Vaughn story. In the- so this, you know, this is a minor story, but I think it illustrates this principle. In my house, I'm known as at least um, tacitly and probably only externally as the healthy eating guy, even though I don't really eat that healthy. <laughs> but I like to tell the people in my household, which is five of us, um, yeah. about healthy eating. And, you know, I like also to judge what people are eating and stuff. That's, that's part of my thing. So, the, <laughs> so I'm thinking probably, about our lunches out. I'm like, oh right. man, now this is, this is where this is going. So, okay. you know, it's what I don't like is we we have uh, my wife and I we we try to put all of our um, expenses on as we have a shared credit card so that we can yeah. track everything like all that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so what I don't like though. Um, is for sometimes my wife goes through it and she does the categorizing. And so then she sees what Mike's eating for lunch sometimes when he's you know out at <laughs> with- work and not at home. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, if that should get out into the family, it's even worse. So that's a, that's a silly example, but actually it's not so much because yes. in reality, yes. there's shame attached to going to Chick-fil-A versus, and they know I'm not getting the salad. They have delicious salads, but I'm not getting that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I go home and I talk about, you know, eating vegetables, um, you know, and at this point, no one takes me seriously, which is appropriate because <laughs> I'm, I don't, I haven't built up that capital. But the point of the story is, you know, something small, like where I spend my money at lunch says a lot about what yeah. I really value but here's what's hard about that what i really value is not what i really want to value which is to be a healthier person yeah i do value it but it hasn't translated into different actions at least in my mind as much as i would like it to right 
So there, wherever that gap exists is typically shame. And so that's yeah. really what we're talking about, even on a small, silly level like that. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Says a lot about what I really value, but here's what's hard about that. What I really value is not what I really want to value, which is to be a healthier person. Yeah, I do value it, but it hasn't translated into different actions, at least in my mind, as much as I would like it to. Right. So there, wherever that gap exists is typically shame. And so that's really what we're talking about, even on a small, silly level like that. No, I, I, I'm with you and right. I, not every day of the week, but a couple times a week, I'll often go over to Rocky Mountain Chocolate Factory and get a chocolate chip oh, yeah. cookie and a Diet Coke, right? And it's like, yes, my a high value is physical health and eating nutritiously. But I think we can also get in that and uh, either or categorization. I'm either a healthy eater or I'm an unhealthy eater. Yeah. And then, you know, that sets some traps. But like, yeah. And then so how do we communicate in our family? And then you know, maybe there's... You know, fairness and justice starts coming up into play. Like, wait, why do you get to spend $200 a month eating out on lunch? I only spend $50, right? And it's yeah. like families get into these really uncomfortable comparison. And But then you turn it back yeah. and you're like, well, but you spend $400 on personal grooming and I only spend 50 So, right? And then couples are now stuck in this mm-hmm. dilemma of like, well, I guess I'm going to have a mine account and your account. And like... Mm-hmm. So that fairness and justice piece shows up very quickly in family yes. finances. And in the same way, I think that sexual expectations show up. So can you mm-hmm. talk about how you see fairness and justice as a lens for looking at couples and sex? Yeah, sure. You know, I think uh, so much of what I work with with couples, of course, is disordered sexuality. Right. Right. So if um, in our very best of times, our sexual selves and then the expression of sex between us is about deepening intimacy, is taking the intimacy that we already are fostering and deepening even more. It's adding to it. Yeah. Disordered sexuality actually does quite the opposite. It robs us of intimacy. And so that's the false part is it looks like it's something similar, but it's not. Uh-huh. And so I think when thinking about what then would be healthy sexuality for couples rather than unhealthy or disordered, you have to look at, is it adding to our vulnerability, the literal, but also metaphorical figurative exposing of ourselves to one another, like the things that, that come with that, which really the, the best sex is going to have also with it the most present and deepest emotional connections as well. Mm. And so with sex addiction in particular, what happens is, um, you know, with all addiction, there's preoccupation. Okay. But you're not, 
but you're not preoccupied, of course, or focused on the right things. And uh. so with sex, it's about not being able to be present because this thing outside of the, the actual interaction has you, right? Right. And I would guess and think you speak to this better than me, but money is similar. Like we can become similarly preoccupied with oh. money and it takes us out of that current state. I mean, absolutely. I, I hadn't quite put those words together in the way that you have, but financial preoccupation, I see it all the time. Like a very great example of that is a couple I've worked with. Wonderful couple. Great. I mean, I think most people, if you met them, you would love them, right? They're great people. She's incredibly giving um, in the helping world, right? And she tends to be very present oriented and just gives money away. Mm. He's super future-oriented and highly preoccupied with being able to retire, mm. right? So, they both have the, kind of their own preoccupation that distracts them from their shared current financial reality. Yeah. They both have preoccupation with miss, which leads them to miss mm -hmm. the other side of the equation, right? As humans that need to do financial planning, we've got to balance between our time orientations of present mm -hmm. needs and future needs, and we can get overly preoccupied and then for her, it's preoccupied in caring for others financially mm. without thinking about what it means to care for herself financially. Ah, uh, yeah. And so in that preoccupation, she loses sight and can't understand why her husband is over here wigging out and being critical of her spending. Mm -hmm. And he's so lost in his preoccupation about being able to retire and, and not be able to. And rightly because, you know, and this is the objective world of money is it does take a certain amount of money every month and every year to live. Right. And and that varies on family to family. And we can make some projections that you're going to need a certain amount of money 20 years from now to be able to sustain your standard of living. We can do that mathematically. Mm -hmm. And he knows that. And he knows there's a gap between what we're yeah. doing now and what we need to to get there 20 years from now. But helping him relax that preoccupation to join and see his wife's help them get closer together on a financial intimacy. Mm -hmm. So there's a long journey here, but I think mm -hmm. that word preoccupation is is the the linchpin that's so powerful. Yeah. And so Mike, you talked about kind of your specialties in three prongs, sex addiction, couples work, and trauma. Mm -hmm. And as we're moving through this interview, we've talked a good bit about sex, a little bit about couples, but we mm -hmm. haven't yet really unpacked trauma. And you yeah. you poked me a little earlier and I loved it because you know, only, a, of course, if everybody's going to ask me, well, maybe that umbrella meant something from your childhood too. <laughs> and I don't know that it does. Maybe it, it does. Not. It may not. But <sighs> I don't know that my brain's wandering off like, what, what could it be? What, what could it be? Focus, Ed, here. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about trauma and the role mm -hmm. of trauma as it then leads us to addiction and couple functioning issues. Yeah. You know, I think addiction and money, we can put them together when we talk about trauma, because the truth is the pain that trauma produces in our lives is so great that we have to medicate it. We're going to medicate it through sex, food, money, TV, alcohol, or money. Building financial security is a major medication major to psychological medication. pain. Yes, because the more externally secure I feel, the more internally, at least secure in a sense I feel. Now that that's the hope, right? right? But that's where that's the goal, and that's where there's a lot of very insecure, wealthy people. 
and, and no no judgment on wealthy people. I, I love wealthy people. I, I am a wealthy person and I support wealthy people. <laughs> but if you have achieved wealth and you still don't feel secure inside, there's a journey to be taken internally. Sorry to interrupt, but. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, um, a, a guy that I really like in the addiction field, his name's Gabor Matei, but he says, and when we, when we look at addiction, why, why would you ask why the addiction, we should be asking why the pain and that's trauma. The pain is yes. about trauma um, right. because trauma in its various forms, whether big T or little T, it produces pain to a degree that we can't ameliorate it with the external things that we, but we continue to try to do it. Yes. And so trauma, but we've been talking today about shame. And so we should just mention and link those two up together. Trauma produces pain. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the real thing about trauma is it changes our belief about ourselves and our belief about others and our belief about relationships. Yeah. Also with it comes the shame of I am not something, right? Good enough is a classic one, but there are a lot of I am messages that trauma produces for us. Those are so profound that we have to have medication. If you have a raging headache for a few days, sooner or later, you will take, you will do something to try to medicate it. Damn straight. Yeah, I make it about 30 minutes with a headache. <laughs> <You're pretty> 30. <laughs> I know, probably I'm not even that long. And so for those listening and they're thinking about um, trauma and so what are the results or the effects of trauma and how does especially it relate to either sex or money? Well, how it relates is trauma produces pain, pain that cannot be assuaged through all the ways we try to do it, which then leads us though to that Preoccupation is part of an addiction cycle where we try to go about medicating with a thing that is, it doesn't work. But right. instead of us saying, oh, that doesn't work, I'm going to stop doing that, we continue to, we continue double to down, do more. triple we down. Double down. Yes. And so that happens financially because, listen, we haven't said today, we should say, you know, everybody knows this, but. When you go on Amazon and you're looking for stuff, there are very chemical, similar chemical processes that are happening in your brain as when you are doing something sexual, as in you are thinking about... When you're about looking at pornography. Drink. Yes. Let's just like, name it. Looking at pornography similar. and shopping on Amazon are evoking the same neurochemical processes mm -hmm. by and large. There's very, a whole, very whole field called neuromarketing and yeah. if you don't think Amazon and all the other top marketers have studied how the brain works and what it takes to activate those chemicals, those feel-good pleasure chemicals, mm -hmm. oxytocin being one of them, dopamine being another one, you're missing the boat. And so yeah. whether you're looking at naked women or naked men online or you're looking at the hottest new gadget, you're evoking similar processes and the ability for marketers to heighten that arousal and that release is increasingly more and more effective. More effective as the technology continues to evolve. And that's the thing. So and the, Oh, the frequency, Mike, too, right? That frequency piece, that's part frequency. of what drives that cycle is that availability. It's endless. And, you know, we yes. know this in the sex addiction field um, and that we will say, like, many, many people are sex addicts today that wouldn't have been before the internet because the ubiquitousness of the information just it is producing more addicts. And that's true, though, of the shopping thing as well. Yes. Um, because of what you're talking about with the neurochemicals. The thing I want everybody, though, I hope to hear in this is that 
it's not about sex. I always joke with my clients. It's not about sex. That's it's, right. It's not about shopping on Amazon. It's about the pain that's underneath it. Like, where is that drive coming from? Now, listen, even when people have smaller amounts of trauma or even they've worked through their trauma, the nature of uh, electronics and like you're talking about with neuromarketing is so powerful, just like the way they've orchestrated food too. Like it's so powerful to the palate. Even if something deeper is not really driving it, it's still hard to resist that, but we shouldn't miss the addictive nature of all of it. So let's roll back. So, and sorry, I know you're about to go somewhere else, but if we roll back and we're talking about trauma, trauma is the mechanism that leads to addiction problems, relational problems. It creates these I am statements. Let's call it out. What are those traumas that you hear of in your clients' backgrounds that are just so pervasive in our society? Yeah. What are the things that clients have actually experienced that lead to this psychic pain that they cannot ameliorate? The main thing I would say to that is so there are the there are the universal I call them universal traumas. These are things that would be injurious to people no matter what culture they live in and where they are in the world, right? Um yeah. and so these are big things like natural disasters and maybe um terrible car accidents and potentially like certain forms of assault for sure, like no matter uh, what. You're going right. to be traumatized by it. A lot of what I see in my office, though, is not lesser trauma. It just comes in a different form, and that's what I call interrelational trauma. So these are the things that happen in our intimate relationships, either us with caregivers, parents, people like that, right. or as we go along, other types of relationships. But where it often shows up or starts is either with the presence of something that we don't need, like abuse, for example, uh -huh. right? Or um, really words that injure us, right? Like you're never going to amount to anything. You're a no good. Like these things that sometimes right. parents say. You're a brat. You're a brat. You're spoiled. You're all of those you words, <sighs> the, they impact us. The, the you're spoiled one has a particular financial relevance, mm -hmm. right? Those, are, those ones. So I'm, I'm just going to hit that as a high note. We're too much. We can unpack that at some other time. But yes, so you're hearing these statements about the self as a child. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of them. That's kind of the emotional abuse side of things. And then emotional abuse. That's presence of something that you don't that you do not need. But on the other side is the absence of something that you do. And so that's about neglect. So I needed the, the I you know I've said this before. Like probably the most common trauma that um. My clients I've worked through through the years of experiences, they either did not get much or any physical affection from parents, or they did not ever hear either "I love you" or "I'm proud of you." It's amazing how many people never heard that their whole life. Oh. And they'll say to me, "I knew I know my parents loved me, and I know that they were proud of me." And, and I will certainly say, "I 100, I'm sure they were." And <clears throat> that doesn't change the fact that you actually need as a child to. Actually, adults need to hear those words. The words matter. The words matter and the physical touch matters, especially uh -huh. for children, because until they get to a certain point where they can process language, touch touch, and presence is all they have by, or most of what they have by way of expression of love. 
So the absence of that, that's what that would be neglect. That's the absence of. So it's either the presence of or the absence of, but either way, those usually form the cores of what our people experience as traumas in their lives, interrelationally anyway. Wow. So that and you know, this is just kind of at the psychological emotional level. And then we I would be remiss to not mention the amount of physical violence that your clients have experienced and then sexual um, violence on a continuum. Yeah. So can you unpack those two pieces? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think with the physical violence piece, often um, in times past and certainly still now, um, there there are different forms of discipline than what we now know are are really healthy. Um, yeah. And oftentimes that would be in the form of spanking. But, you know, spanking is not what we're talking about. We're talking about oftentimes beating or something more not that spanking is good, but like it's done in the wrong, done in the wrong ways. It's given with quite a level, high level of aggression and contempt and anger, rage, right? It's, and in the absence, a lot of times, unfortunately, of relationship otherwise. Now, it wouldn't have been right anyway. Right. But I often see this kind of double whammy almost where there's not a lot of presence in terms of the I love you's and the physical affections. Right. And then, though, there's these explosive moments. And when you put those together, that's particularly insidious and injurious to people, to children especially. To their sense of self, right? Like To their sense of self. Because children internalize things first, usually. It's about me, meaning something I did made this happen. They don't, adults are the ones that say, well, you, it must have been your fault, right? Right. It, tur- right. it turns. But what people don't understand about childhood development and the developmental process is that children, first and foremost, through most of their developmental process, assume it's them first. Only later when they get to teenager and later can they say, well, wait a minute, maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was you. Which is a major part of adult developmental healing, isn't it? Yes. Ultimately, trauma work is about completing the process that was interrupted when the trauma occurred. You almost only can do that as an adult because you have to look back and say, wait a minute. The way I stored that information, which was that I I am bad or I am worthless or I am not lovable, is actually not true. Mom or dad was doing that from a different place, and now I have that shift. Which I make it sound real easy. It's actually super oh, hard to do that. It's it, <laughs> it's incredibly hard. In a but nutshell, that's what happens. Yeah, that's that's the big concept we want people to walk away yeah. with. If you're an adult, you've been listening to this. If you haven't started on your own healing journey, or you're midway, or heck, maybe you're really down, long down the healing journey, it's still helpful to hear this and be reminded of that this is an ongoing process to heal from these types of traumas. And so mm-hmm. um, you know, this just as people are listening, we're going to talk about sexual abuse here for a few minutes. And if this is, if there's going to be one topic that's going to be particularly triggering, this is going to be it. So fast forward three or four minutes, uh, Mike and I are going to unpack this and then we'll bring this episode together and kind of put a bow on everything that we've covered today. So Mike, um, Obviously, in sexual addiction, there's a lot of links back to early childhood sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. at least as I understand it. Can you unpack 
kind of the spectrum of sexual abuse that children experience and and yeah. gender relevancy too, because I think that that's something that needs to really be opened up to. Yeah. So what most people think of when they think of sexual abuse are overt sexual acts directed towards children, which a hundred percent naturally that is sexual abuse, right? So these are things like unwanted or unhealthy sexual touching. I mean, no, no touching is healthy when it's sexual at that age, of course, but right. sexual touching all the way up to intercourse and other like other things that are so overtly egregiously sexual. So there's that part of sexual abuse. And right. I think the part about the gender thing is that um, that happens more often statistically to girls than boys, but it happens far more often to boys than what society ever talks about. And so what I see in my office oftentimes are boys who have had some form of sexual abuse. And of course, that what that does is it interrupts and influences the developmental process, the sexual developmental process, which later, not always, but later that can translate and at least impact things like sex addiction and other addictions as well. So that's one end of the spectrum. Right, right. But what people miss is on the other side of the spectrum is exposure-based abuse. Okay. I often will have my, I'll say to my clients, tell me about kind of how old were you when you were first exposed to something sexual? And they'll, they'll say something that was more overt. Like, um, I found my dad's playboys in the bathroom and write that thing yeah, a lot of times. Sure. Right. But when you kind of start to hear this story more, you find out, Oh, but wait a minute. Um, both mom and dad walked around naked in the house a bunch. Um, and that was from as early as I could remember. It just was a thing. Or when I hear actually quite often, people might be surprised is, one or the other parent would either shower or be in the bathroom with the doors open, like no boundaries Okay. Yeah. or change in their room with the doors open, no boundaries. And mm-hmm. I'll say to them, that's actual, that's that, that level of sexual exposure because of being unprepared for that information that becomes abusive. You, you had no platform with which to put that. And so the only byproduct of that or product even of that is going to be, um, it's going to injure you. There's just no way that it can't. You're not able to process that. So I got a question on that, that end, and it's, it's relevant as I'm raising three young boys, right? And they're coming of age and nudity and, you know, they're wanting to increasingly protect their own privacy, especially my 11 year old son. You know, he doesn't need us to bathe him for sure. Hasn't needed it for a long time. Right. Six year old is getting close to the four year old uh, closer, but still a little ways. But it's the other side of like, how do we help children develop a healthy relationship with the adult bodies and the parent nudity piece, right? Like this is, because in the household, there's so many moving pieces and right. And so mm-hmm. in some ways there's, I don't want parents to be freaking out like, oh my God, my 12 year old saw me naked. So now they have sexual right. abuse and I'd never intended that. That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're, we're talking about something a little more provocative or suggestive or the, the parent's response to the child when they see them naked inadvertently yes. or advert, right on the inadvertent side, how do you respond? If it's intentional, that's a, that of course that's pushing the boundaries is well, I'll teach them about sex and bodies by showing them mine and pointing and touching and right. And that probably crosses a number of different boundaries. It does. I, the word that comes to mind is pervasiveness. 
So exposure for this time or that time, like this, these accidental things, which all occurs in all families, but otherwise there's a context of healthy boundaries around our sexuality. Right. Healthy boundaries always allow us then to have all kinds of conversations about all kinds of things, including sexual things. And it's totally fine. Mm. Pervasiveness is what changes it from exposure, like kind of these infrequent occurrence. And that's not, you're right. Like that's not abusive. That's not the point. The pervasiveness of, I'm not going to teach you any boundaries around your sexuality. By the way, I live mine. That's when it becomes abusive because more of those times that happen because that's the ethos or the culture of the family, then what you said, which I think is critical there there isn't any going back to and talking about experiences, which we know, by the way, if people are concerned and parents out there, if they want the one thing that will help their children get through life with less trauma, at least in their house, it is 100% having an open family system where they talk about the things that have occurred. Mm-hmm. You do that and you complete the cycle for the child. They don't have to then be interrupted. And so that, that reduces a lot of trauma. But as far as what you're talking about, I think wisely said, pervasiveness is the key. Because if it is a part of the culture of the family and nothing's talked about with it, then again, children feel the bind of the exposure to something that they have no business being exposed to. That is not the same of, I walked in on mom and dad being sexual, which happens in every family, or... Um, you know, I went into a closed door even, um, right. and they were changing. Like, that's not what we're talking about. But if that does happen, then it's kind of like you get dressed 30 minutes later, an hour later, some reasonable time later, you revisit with the child and say, hey, I know you walked in on me. This is how it made me feel. I'm curious how it made you feel to have that happen. Is that what you're talking about with closing the cycle? And then yes. just acknowledging and normalizing whatever that emotional response is. But part of the the underlying assumption that's just below the surface of what we're talking about is that our human sexuality is both private and public and in different ways. And there's some nuance there. And so if we don't ever create privacy boundaries around our bodies and what's permissible, it can leave us really vulnerable into our adult life thinking like, Oh, well, everyone should just be able to see me naked or make comments about my body or whatever happens to be. And so I want to bring this full circle back around to kind of that privacy piece that parents struggle with around family money, because there's some Mm -hmm. very common parallels here, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, mom and dad need to have time where they can talk privately about the household finances, the spending, the retirement plans, insurance decisions, uh, estate planning, all those kinds of things, because the weight of them is beyond what the child can contextualize or really make full sense of. Right. At the same time, your kids are going to hear you talking about money and money decisions, and you're going to be coordinating with your spouse about what should be done or not done many times while the kids hear. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to, as the kids growing up, talk to them about what they're hearing and start signaling to them that there are times when they're hearing things, but there are private times when mom and dad or mom and or, or step parents, whoever your caregivers are, are also having private conversations because yeah. you don't tell you don't have to tell them what happens in the private conversation, but they do need to know that there are private conversations that mom and dad are having on an ongoing basis 
trying to coordinate and you're only getting small pieces of what's mm -hmm. really happening here. And I realize a six-year-old's not going to understand that, but an 11 and 12-year-old will definitely start to understand that. Yes. Well, I, I love that. I think that that is the perfect parallel to what we are just talking about. But when that doesn't occur, the, there's a similar internal process then that happens for the child, which ultimately is confusion. And that confusion is going to get expressed somehow as an adult, pure and simple. Big time. And I think in very simple terms, and we'll kind of wrap on the, this note is, and, and maybe you'll you use this continuum too, is from chaos to rigidity, right? Is this continuum mm -hmm. of functioning financially, sexually, in our intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. And typically in, in the mental health counseling world, we say the middle zone, not a middle point. There's not a middle perfect balance point. So mm -hmm. don't don't wreck your brain trying to find what's that perfect balance. There's a middle zone between rigidity where we don't talk about anything, we share nothing. You talked about open systems and close, mm -hmm. which is another term. Anyhow, we could keep going, Mike. I'm watching mm -hmm. the time here. But if we're going to put it on rigidity or chaos is we want to find that middle zone of flexibility mm -hmm. and curiosity is a word that we've shown. And so in flexibility, yeah. there's curiosity and there's privacy. So Mike, so many moving pieces. I'm sure people that are listening yeah. may have their head spinning, but if they wanted to connect with you and the work that you're doing, if they're concerned about their sexual intimacy and sexual addiction, how do they find you? Yeah, lots of ways. I have, probably have too many websites. <laughs> of course, of I'm course. sure I do. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> because I'm spending money unnecessarily. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so you can find me at a couple places website-wise. There's therestorationexperience.com. That's one. Um, surehopecounseling.com. People can email me, LPC at gmail.com. That's a spot. And if you're doing socials, um, it's at Von Mike on Instagram. V-A-U-G-H-N, Mike, M-I-K. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Mike, uh, I'm so glad that we met all those years ago and yeah. the time together has been fantastic. I'll look forward to Always. many future interviews. I'm not giving up on my lunches with you. Definitely not. But talk about public and private. We're going to have our private lunches, but 100%. we will do some more public interviews. Uh, this has been a blast. Thank you for letting me do this. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.